This morning I'll be in Exodus chapter 13, so if you have a Bible you can go there. If you're using a Pew Bible, it's page 55. If you're using your phone, please stay off Instagram. You can tell when you're laughing and it's not because of my jokes. So. Well, this morning I wanted to share a bit of our own story of what led us here to this church at Stones Crossing. Um, and the goal is not just for me to share so you know a little bit more of who is this guy I have to listen to all of June, but I think our story actually matches with the message this morning about what it looks like to feel lost in the wilderness, but then also to be led in the wilderness. We'll give a really simplified, shortened version. Um, about eight years ago, I helped plant a church in Fishers and did a si- similar role to what I do now. But then maybe three or four years ago, um, we started to feel this desire to move closer to family. And part of that was some of our own hard wilderness seasons that we had walked through. But at the time, as we prayed about it, talked about it, thought about it, um, we just kept reading and hearing this message pop up that said, wait. Just kept hearing the message of wait over and over again. Well, then in 2021, even though I wasn't eager eager to leave the church, I felt like God was starting to slowly shift my heart to be more open to moving. But I also knew that finding the right job would be pretty hard and complicated. Now, there was a specific job I was looking for. Um, see, I, don't, I love kids and teens, but I don't love working with them. Much better with adults. Um, and Adam always tells me when I'm singing, make sure my pack is off so no one hears me sing. So worship pastor is definitely out. So I had this specific job of working with adults I was looking for. You know, they can't just work for any church. There are some um, theological and practical things I was looking for in a church. And then also my wife and I were only looking at two places in all of America. We were looking at the south side of Greenwood and then the east side of Memphis. Now those narrow parameters pretty much meant God had to open a door or we wouldn't walk through one. Well then in October of 2021, so about a year and a half ago, um, a job popped open that actually felt like it fit all of those criteria. It was actually in a suburb of Memphis where my wife's family lived. Now then from October until about January, we walked through this process where we had multiple conversations with the church. We were scoping it out. We had um, visits in person. um, And through it all, we were praying and just trying to figure out, like, what is God doing? Well, then in January of 2022, we were going to our final in-person interview. At this point, I knew it was a pretty good chance that I was going to take the job. So I talked to the church I was at, explained that we were going to visit this church. It was likely we would go there. Tried to give them time to think through what they would do um, to replace me, which was pretty easy. And so we go to Memphis for this final weekend, and it's pretty much the last box to check. Unless there's a red flag, we knew that's where we're probably moving. And so we go, and as much as we like the church and the people, both Melissa and I, by that Sunday afternoon, we had this strong yellow caution flag in our spirit. We flew back to India that Sunday night, and we were just really lost and confused. It felt like God had given us this desire to move, He had opened up a door, he had led us down this path, and then all of a sudden there was a screeching halt. So we were wondering, what was God doing? We had this hard conversation with the church we were at, and we felt like this isn't where we're supposed to be, and then the door that had opened up had closed in our face. So what was God doing? Honestly, that Sunday night as we flew home, we were confused, we felt lost. It didn't seem like there were any options of how to move forward. All we could do was pray and ask that God would lead us. Well, we got into Indianapolis late that Sunday night. We stayed with family. And the very first thing Monday morning, as we were talking with my sister-in-law, 
She told us about a job opening here at Stone's Crossing, a discipleship pastor job that was just announced the day before. And we felt like the timing of it was providential, so I shot Pastor Scott an email. We had a conversation that afternoon. Now, after a couple of interviews, it felt like God was starting to lead us towards Stone's Crossing. But meanwhile, the church in Memphis offered us a job, which felt more confusing. As we'll talk about, it's often confusing the way God is leading us, and we were wondering, why couldn't God just lead them to not offer us a job? Maybe he was leading us there. It just made things harder and more confusing. And yet we felt like what God was doing was leading us to trust him. We felt like he was leading us to stones. And so even though we didn't have a job offer offer here, we didn't know for sure if we would be offered a job, we declined the job in Memphis. Well, it was only a couple of days later that Stones offered a job, um, and Melissa and I felt a lot of clarity um, about this is where God was leading us. So here we are. It's been about a year. But why I wanted to mention this is I think it brings up this question. Why did God have to lead us on that long, winding route? Why all the confusion and the mixed signals of following this detour of Memphis for four months? Why the closed doors? Now, I simplified the story to keep it from getting too long, but over those months and even years, there were a lot of hard moments of waiting, of feeling confused, of experiencing loneliness, of fighting as a married couple as we try to figure out where we want to move and what we think we should do. There was concern about have we made the right decisions or the wrong decisions, and then just wondering, will God answer our prayer? Will God lead us? Now, I don't know all the things that God was doing, but I think a few things have emerged that we noticed God was doing in our hearts. At the time, both of us kind of had this closed grip approach to life. We wanted to each move near our family, mine here and her family in Memphis. So I think part of what God was doing was teaching us it's better to surrender our will to his. It's better to have open hands than closed hands, and that it's better to just trust that whatever God has for us is better than what we want for ourselves. I think during this time that God was using this long, long winding path to teach us to wait on him, to move when he says move, but to stay when he says stay. He taught us that he answers prayer, that he opens up doors that we don't know will be open, that he has resources we don't know about, and that he can do things that we never foresee. And so even, like that, even though that felt like a long wilderness season, in the wilderness, God proved his faithfulness to us, and he taught us what it really means to live by faith in him. Well, I think our story, this short story, it illustrates what we'll see in Exodus today, that it's often in the waiting, and it's often when we are fearful that we learn to trust God and turn to him the most, and that God's path might be perplexing in the moment, but it's always proven in the end. Well, last week I introduced us to this June series on the theme of wilderness in the book of Exodus. I shared this main idea for the series, and it's that the wilderness is a training ground for our faith in God, as well as a proving ground for God's faithfulness to us. So God is growing our faith in him and proving his faithfulness to us. Last week, we considered the story of Moses and how God prepared Moses in the wilderness and how God revealed himself to Moses in the wilderness. 
Well, this week, we'll actually be skipping all of chapters 4 to 13, and that is a lengthy section where Moses goes to Pharaoh and essentially says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. You know the song. And then there are all these plagues, these 10 plagues, and finally a Passover. And what's happening is God is demonstrating his power, his authority over these false gods of Egypt. Eventually, Pharaoh is defeated and he tells Moses, take the people and go, get out of here. So then at the end of chapter 12 in Exodus, they begin this great retreat. They're finally freed from their lifelong slavery and they're headed toward the promised land. Well, this leads us to the first leg of the journey, uh, after the first leg of the journey, to Exodus 13, 17. And if you're willing and able, I'm asked that you would stand this morning as I read Exodus 13, 17 through chapter 14, verse 2. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people." Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and to encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this morning I want us to consider from chapter 13 four aspects of what it means for God to lead us. So what does this look like in our life? And then I think this will take us to chapter 14, to the Red Sea crossing, where we see those four truths actually put to the test. And my hope is that what we see God, how he acts in the wilderness then, it's a reminder of how he might act in our lives, in our own wilderness today. So the first thing we see is that God leads his people. Now before I describe aspects of how God leads his people, it's important not to miss this basic fact, that he does lead his people. God doesn't set Israel free and just lead them to figure out where to go or what to do next. He doesn't open their prison doors and then just abandon them to themselves. They are a free people, but they have lived their entire life as slaves in Egypt. So they now need led, not just in where to go, but they need led in the sense of how to live, what's right and good and true, and how to walk with their God. And so God leads them toward maturity in these ways by preparing them in the wilderness and by proving himself there. So we see that God does lead his people. Second thing we see is that God leads his people by being with them continually. So when we get to talk about how God leads his people, it includes the promise that he stays with us. For God to be with his people, it's not only that he is present with us, but he's also for us that he helps us, and that his favor and his power are what move us forward. 
And so we see that God is with his people, it says, in the pillar. And then later in Exodus, he is with them in the tabernacle. And so God doesn't deliver Israel and then send an army of angels and say, hey, hand out maps, tell them where to go, and then I'll see you when you get there. God actually shows up and he gives them his personal presence the entire way. And the image we're given of God leading his people, it's not of a cowboy just kind of driving the cattle to the ranch, but the image we get in scripture is of God as a father, of holding the hand of his children, and then when they can't walk, of carrying them in his arms. Later in Deuteronomy, when they're on the brink of entering the promised land and they look back, Moses says this. He describes the time in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. And then listen to this description from Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 to 12. Again, it's describing the wilderness. It says, God found his people in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. And then going back to Exodus 13, notice we're told not just that God is with his people, we're told he is with them all the time. Verse 22 says, the pillar, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. So it says day, night, God is always with them. And then the very last book of, or the very last verse in the book of Exodus, it echoes this theme. The very last phrase says that God was with them throughout all their journeys. So day and night, all their journeys, God is with them. And it's telling us that God's presence with his people is permanent. That God doesn't drop in on occasion to check in on us. God doesn't part ways when things get tough. Now people can fail us and abandon us. People might fail us when we need them the most. People might leave us or forsake us. But the Bible tells us God does none of those things. That God is with us. And so this is partly just a reminder that today, in your wilderness, God is present with you. That tonight in the darkness, as the fears creep in, as uncertainties come to mind, that God is with you then. And that even tomorrow or this week, as you face new mountains, as you stumble into new valleys that are hard, God will be with you then. God is always with his people. The third thing we see is that God also leads us according to his knowledge of us. Listen again to verses 17 and 18. It says, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, or that would have made sense. But it says, God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And so God leads them around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So what's being described here is that God actually leads them on a longer, winding, circular route because he knows their heart and he says they're not yet ready to fight. And so just let that sink in for a minute. That as we talk about God leading you, he actually considers you. That he knows your fears and worries. He knows your capacities and your limits. He knows what you can and can't handle. Again, we don't have this image of God being a cold, harsh leader who just plows ahead whether we can keep up or not. 
Instead, we're told that God tailors a specific plan for us based upon his comprehensive knowledge of us and his compassionate knowledge of who we are. He is a good shepherd who knows his sheep and he knows what is best for those sheep. God doesn't throw us in the deep end of the pool when we're not ready, and yet we also see that God doesn't leave us in the shallow end when we need to start swimming. For me, I think of the, when I think of this, it's similar to how a parent parents their kids knowing them individually and who they are and what they need. For instance, in my family, I have two kids, and my older daughter, Lily, she's a firstborn, very responsible, cautious, and she's even a bit afraid of things. And so what that fear does is it often keeps her from learning new things. So part of how we parent Lily is we actually have to push her into trying things. We have to stretch her. Now, Wyatt, our boy, he's pretty much the opposite. He never sees anything he's afraid of. He's just ready to jump into things that he's not, re- not ready to do and often things that can get him into trouble. And so where our daughter Lily needs stretched and pushed, our son Wyatt needs reined in and restrained. Now, you don't want to go overboard in either direction. So part of what you try to figure out is where do you push, where do you pull them back, and where do you just step back and see what happens? And it is as challenging as it sounds if you don't have kids. If I ever write a parenting book, I think it will be called Good Luck. (laughs) So that's the truth of it. But as a parent, you are able or you try to lead them specifically based on your knowledge of who they are, and you kind of figure it out through trial and error. But what we learn from this is if we as earthly parents, if we consider our children and we lead them based upon who they are, how much better is God at leading us, at shepherding us, his children, based on his perfect knowledge and care of who we are. And so this morning, I want you to consider that if God takes Israel here on a longer, more difficult route, because he knows them well, well enough to know they're not yet ready to fight the Philistines and they can't go that way, could it be that he knows you well enough to know what's best for you, to know what you can and can't handle, to know what you are ready to receive or not yet ready to receive? Instead of God's detours and delays in your life causing you to question his care, maybe those are actually examples of his care and protection for you. God knows you so well, and God wants you to grow so much that he knows what truths you need to learn, what lessons you need to learn, and he knows exactly how and when to teach them to you. He knows what prayers to answer and when to answer them. He knows what things to bring into your life, what to give you, and what not to bring into your life. So we see that God leads us according to his knowledge of us. And then the fourth truth we see about how God leads, we see that God leads us on unexpected paths and at an unpredictable pace. So here in chapter 13, Israel, they're finally embarking on this journey. They can put Egypt in their rearview mirror. They can head toward Canaan. And yet what God says is immediately he takes them on a surprising direction. Now, there's a straight shot from Egypt to Canaan. You can see this map on on the screen. There's a straight shot that would take about two weeks, but God actually takes them on this long circular route through the wilderness. Now, the route God takes them on from Egypt to Israel, it's essentially like going from Greenwood to Nashville, Tennessee by going all the way through St. Louis. Or it's as confusing as why American Airlines sends me from Indianapolis over to Philadelphia to fly to Orlando. I don't really get that. 
But what we learn is that God's wilderness routes, these winding circular routes in our life, they're because he's not interested in the shortest, most direct route for us. God doesn't lead us in the shortest, shortest path possible, but in what is the wisest path possible. God doesn't lead you into what is the easiest thing for you, but what is the best thing for you. God's not only interested in the destination, though he will get you there, he's also interested in what you need to learn along the way. Michael Kelly writes this, and so God takes us on the long way, and that's not the wrong way, because there's a funny thing that happens on the long way. You actually do become something rather than just end up somewhere. In fact, you might say it like this, the most formative parts of your lives the ones that fashion real character, dependence, faith, and perseverance, these are often the most difficult. When you feel like you are wandering around in circles, when you don't seem to be making any progress, and when you might even feel trapped, those are the forging times. And so his route through the wilderness, it's not to avoid all challenges because they'll face plenty of challenges in the wilderness, but he only allows them to face the challenges he knows will teach them and prepare them without crushing them. And so by them going through the wilderness, they'll learn firsthand who their God is. What's interesting is when they leave Egypt, they're not ready for certain things, but after their time in the wilderness, they are because they've seen who God is and their faith in him has grown. We see as well, not only does God lead us then in unexpected routes, but he has his own timing and pace. We're told that Israel's camp is to move whenever they see the pillar of God move, but they're to stay put whenever this pillar stays put for as long as it's there. And as you read Exodus or Numbers, you see that many of the routes they take, many of the stops that God takes them to, and sometimes for the length that God tells them to stay, this doesn't always make sense to Israel. Why this route? Why this spot? Why are we staying here this long? And yet God is teaching them to trust him to trust him when it doesn't make sense, and to trust him because we don't know what God is doing and we can't foresee what God wants to do when we're there. And so much of living by faith in the wilderness is waiting by faith. And the waiting game is not a game we enjoy playing. But in the waiting, we learn to trust in God. We release control and we embrace this vulnerability that says, God has to guide me. And not only does God have to guide me, but I don't know how long this will last. I don't know when or where I'm going to go. And I don't know how this will actually turn out, but I'm trusting and waiting on him. Ray Ortland says, waiting is what faith does before God's answer shows up. That time before the cloud does move, that time before we know what to do next, before we see what the provision or the deliverance will be, that time of waiting can be difficult. It can be disorienting, frustrating, or confusing. Confusing, And we can even wonder, what is God doing? What's going on? Why am I here? How long will I be here? And yet, this waiting in the wilderness, this is the opportunity to grow. This is the chance to trust God, to wait on him, and to see how he will work in your life. And as the opening story, I hope, shows, sometimes why, why we are waiting, and I know this is true for my life, I'm still waiting because I'm not yet ready for the answer or the next step. 
that God still has things to do in me, still needs to change my heart, he still needs to shape me, and until I'm ready, he's not going to move on. And so it's the wilderness, a wilderness of waiting that helps us practice these spiritual muscles of waiting on the Lord and trusting in the Lord, of following God's lead, God's pace, God's timing. So that's chapter 13. In chapter 13, we see this truth, that, we, that God leads us exactly where we need to go and when we need to go. And then in chapter 14, we have the trial. We have this question of will we then trust God's leading when we face fear, worry, and uncertainty. And I think what we see in the Bible is that God is the ultimate teacher, that he's not just interested in, interested in us learning things, he wants us to live those truths out. And so often God will teach his people truth and then he'll give them a chance to put that into practice. And I think that's what's going on here in the text, that chapter 13 is teaching them that God is with them, God will lead them, trust God, and then chapter 14, all of that is put to the test in a trial. And as we see, Exodus 13, it actually does end again on a high note. So when chapter 14 starts, things are good. Life is finally turned around. Everything is looking good for them. They're headed toward the promised land finally. The long road trip has started. The radio is on. Life is good. They got their feet on the dashboard and a yoo-hoo on the floorboard. Some of you will get that. And so I think we here are starting Exodus 14, and we're excited about where things will go and that they are finally free, and yet what happens? No sooner have they started the journey than there's an interruption. There's something that they'll face that's a threat. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again so you notice this. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and to encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, those names aren't the only confusing thing in this passage. God's directions are a little confusing. It's common knowledge if you're trying to avoid a more powerful enemy, then you don't back yourself into a corner. I mean, this is the problem with every scary movie. They run inside, they go into the house or the building when you need to stay outside and have an escape plan. And yet here, what does God tell them to do? God tells them to encamp somewhere with no escape plan. He tells them to camp in front of the sea, meaning they're cornered, they're caught. There's nowhere they could go if someone comes after them. And so you have this frail group of people without any military experience, probably without many weapons, and without a place to run. Well, then in Exodus 14 and verse 5, it says, Pharaoh starts to realize, what have I done in letting them go? And so he gets his army ready, he gets on his chariots of war, it says, and he pursues after Israel as fast as he can. And verse, says, verse 9 says that he catches up to them when they're here, when they're camped against the Red Sea with nowhere to go. And so we have this picture here that they're pursuing them, and it is not going to be a pretty fight or an even match. It's a bit like in football when the Big Ten plays the SEC, I'm sorry, some of you won't like that. That was just in honor of Pastor Scott and his Alabama team while he's gone. But listen to the response. So that's what's happening. How do they respond? Do they respond with trust in God and believing that he's led them here, he will protect them? Well, it says, when Pharaoh drew near, this is verse 10, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done in bringing us to Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may just serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So here their gut response is unbelief in God and his promises. There's fear of Egypt. There's grumbling over their circumstances. And they find someone that they can point the blame to. Somebody that they can aim their anger at. And that's Moses. And as fear tends to do, it starts talking to them. And fear tells them that there's nothing they can do, that they're going to die, they're going to be enslaved, that it's ruined, and God has failed them. And honestly, if I was in their shoes, I would be thinking the same thing. I wouldn't be standing there full of faith. I'd be wondering, what has happened? What did God do? This must have been a mistake. And yet, thankfully, how we conceive the trials in our life and how we imagine the fear certainly going God can ultimately do what he wants. The story doesn't have to go in that way. With God, the story can go a different direction. When God shows up, things can change, and we see again that God can provide resources we don't know, we don't know are there, and God can provide an outcome that we can't imagine. And so the fifth and the last thing we see this morning is that we fight fear. We fight fear by faith in God. So when they're fearful, Moses gives this response. And I think this response is not just for them. So hear it for yourself this morning. This response is how we respond when we're afraid, when the enemy attacks us, when we feel like we're stuck, we're backed up into a corner, or when we feel like things are hopeless. Here's what Moses said. Verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses says to them and to us, fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord that he will work for you today. Let the Lord fight the battle for you. You just have to sit there and be silent. So what happens in the story? Moses rolls up his sleeves. He gives these instructions. Step back. Watch what God will do. And then we see that Moses is essentially telling them, don't be afraid of the enemy on your heels, but trust the God who can defeat your enemies. Don't let your knees buckle in fear, but let God fight the battle and the fear for you. Moses is saying that you can't fix, change, conquer, or overcome the situation, but God can. God alone can save, deliver, provide, and protect. And maybe that's the lesson they needed to learn, and that's why God brought them there. Maybe that's the lesson we need to learn, and that's why God brings us to certain places similar. The way that, says de- the way that said it was a dead end, all of a sudden, God parts the waters, and now it has a way of escape. That God does the impossible. That God splits the Red Sea He defeats their enemy. He leads them to judgment in the waters. And so we have this picture of God and his power coming to accomplish his plan to provide his deliverance for his people. And then in verse 31, the last verse of the chapter, we see the response that because of all this, because Israel sees what God can do and does on their behalf, it says that their fear of God, their awe of God, it's rekindled and that their faith in God grows because of what happened. So here in Exodus 14, we have this powerful story of deliverance. 
And this story is a reminder that in the wilderness, there will be many dangers and threats, that there will be fears and worries, but none are too big for God. Exodus 14, it actually brings into question God's care for them and God's ability to lead them. And then that question is immediately brought to an answer. God is trustworthy. God was trustworthy when he brought them to this encampment by the sea. God actually wanted to prove his power to them. God wanted them to see that it's he alone who could save them. God wanted to demonstrate his commitment to them and his care for them. And so this trial in the wilderness they face, this wilderness of fear, it's part of how God grows their faith in him and how God proves his faithfulness to them. Well, part of why I love this story of the Exodus and going through the Red Sea is I think it's a beautiful picture of what happens for Israel that actually prefigures what happens for us in the gospel. That we are slaves to sin. That we were standing on the brink of death. That Satan is doing his best to keep us enslaved and to keep us down. And that the, the guilt of our sin means all we do deserve is judgment and death. The picture that's happening here is the picture in our own life, that we are helpless to pay for our sin. We're helpless to cleanse ourselves from sin, that we can no more get ourselves from death to life. We can no more get ourselves from condemnation to justification. We can no more move ourselves from slavery under sin to victory over sin, no more than Israel could have parted the Red Sea and walked across on their own. And yet the picture is that God, in his great mercy and love, God does what he alone can do. And for us, God does what he alone can do by sending Jesus to live the perfect life we could never have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die. And because Jesus paid for our sins at the cross and because he defeated our enemy through the grave, we can have freedom, forgiveness, and new life. That Jesus is leading us on our own new exodus that we, live, leave, we leave sin and slavery behind, and now we stand on the shores of salvation. All we have to do is walk across that and receive the gift by faith. So I think this morning, if you're here and you're a Christian, what you do is you realize, I'm on this side of the sea, and so I can look back and I can see all that God has done for me. I can see where I used to be, where I deserve to be, and where I should be, and yet I can celebrate all that I have in Christ now. And not only that, but we see that we have the same help, the same grace, and the same power is given to us as people who continue to be dependent on it. Because the truth is, as believers, we still continue to sin and need God's mercy. We continue to get ourselves into situations that we can't get out of unless God helps we continue to face obstacles that we can't overcome and fears that we can't conquer unless God steps in. And yet in all these things, we serve the same God who helps in his power and grace. And so what that means is the gospel is not just good news for conversion. The gospel is good news for Christians. It reminds us that God has done all these things in the past, and so we can know that he will keep doing those things in our life today that he will not leave us nor forsake us. He will not allow us to face things that are going to crush or overcome us, but he will protect us. He will lead us through the waters as we go through the wilderness. That God is a good shepherd 
who makes sure every single one of his straying, stubborn sheep make it home to safety. Now I want to give two applications before we sing this morning. And this is a reminder that if the wilderness, if it always has a dual nature that includes both threats and opportunities, fear is no different. That fear can cripple us, it can cause us to shrink back, but fear is also an opportunity, a chance to see God's presence, protection, and power in our life. The first thing I think we see from this passage is we fight fear by shifting our eyes up to God. This is just one of several passages where God's people deal with fear in the wilderness. And there are all kinds of fears we might have today. Fears of safety, of finances, of government, of our health or the health of loved ones. Fear of what will happen to aging parents or to our kids in the future. Fear of failure and rejection. Fear of dying. Fear of a bad situation getting worse. Fear that we'll never get these things we really want or fear that we'll lose the good things we have. So how do you fear not when all of those things can happen in life? How do you obey this command to fear not and to trust God in the midst of all these scary things in our life? Well, the battle against fear, it's fought by faith in God. When Israel here is buckling under the weight of fear, Moses tells them their eyes are focused on the wrong thing. He tells them to get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes off of circumstances, dangers, and threats, and fix your eyes on God. Verse 13 says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. So notice that while seeing Egypt's approaching army causes fear and panic, they will instead see the salvation of the Lord. He's telling them, look for how God is at work instead of looking at the things that are causing you fear. And I know the truth is that you can't simply tell yourself, don't be worried, don't be afraid. Fear is not like an uninvited guest that when you tell it to leave, it does. What you have to do is you have to replace fear. You have to find something more powerful, more gripping, and replace that, replace fear with that. But how do you do that when fear is such a powerful emotion? Well, I think the Bible tells us that a healthy fear of God, and that what that means is a healthy fear of God is a right view of God, a true view of God, a view that understands his love and his power and his knowledge and his sovereignty and his faithful and his holiness, that that view of God, that fear of God, that's the only thing that can replace our unhealthy fears. That what we do is we grow this view of God, our fear of God, and then we worship our way through the wilderness of fear. I think what happens is as God becomes bigger and bigger in our eyes and in our heart, the things that we're afraid of are put into perspective. They don't go away. They're still there. But what happens when you take your fear and you put it next to an infinite, almighty, glorious God is it changes the way you're looking at both. Now, this fear might be bigger than you, but when you put it next to God, it's not bigger than God. You might not be able to control the things you're afraid of, but God can control those things for you. As the classic song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth, including our fears, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so when looking around causes fear, look up in faith. And so maybe for you this morning, part of how you need to apply that is this week, 
finding a specific way to get your eyes up to God. Maybe it's a verse or a truth or a promise or an attribute of God that you need to go back to and cling to when you're afraid. Find what works for you, but find some way this week as we're fearful, worried, and anxious to get your eyes up to God and to look at who he is. And then the second thing I think we see is that we fight fear by trusting God to fight our battles. Moses tells them to stand firm, to stay put, to be silent, and just to watch. We're told to put aside our man-made weapons and to just let God fight for us. Again, this is an act of trust. Trust requires giving up control and letting God be in control. And that's one of the hardest things to do when you're fearful and anxious. We cling for control. We want to feel like, I can affect this. I can change this. I at least know what's going to happen. And yet the reality is we're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful, and so we can't control the situation. So what faith does is it embraces my helplessness, my dependence, and it says I look to God alone to deliverance and help. So faith doesn't mean just running what causes fear. Faith is actually running to God in the midst of our fear. Fear often makes us feel like we want to hide and we want to get away. And the Bible's response is when you feel that way, you hide in God. You find him to be your shelter and your refuge. And so what we're told is that we lay our fears at his feet. When we're afraid, we remember his promises, his promises to be with us, to work all things together for our good, to strengthen us, to sustain us, to provide for us, and ultimately to do us good in the end. The message for us is in the midst of fear, fear not by trusting that the Lord fights our battles. We sang this earlier this morning. When all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is the mountain in front of me, you see a mountain moved. And as I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now, for I am safe with you. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet. And how do we sing through the night? We sing through the night because, oh God, the battle belongs to you. It's not on us. And so if Israel will do this, if they'll stand firm, if they'll watch, they'll see what God had planned all along, that the winding path and the wilderness, that this wasn't a dead end. It's not pointless in their life, that God was doing all these things. God was bringing them here into this trial so he could display his power, his commitment, and his delivering, saving hand to them. And so for us, what we learn is that the wilderness, it's not a waste if it leads to tasting and trusting in the God who leads us and his grace and his power to deliver us. And so this morning, I don't know which side of the Red Sea you're on. I don't know if you're waiting for God to deliver or you're praising him for deliverance, but I know God is good and faithful on both sides of the river. The God who leads us through the waters is the God who will carry you through the wilderness that you are going through. All we're told to do is to trust him to trust the path, to trust his pace, and then when it gets hard, to have our eyes look up to him and to believe that he is fighting the battles for us. Would you pray with me before we sing? God, we thank you for your plans and purposes for us. And God, I pray for everyone in this room. I know that we are all in different seasons of the wilderness. 
that you've led us to a different place where we are asking, what are you doing? Why are we here? And God, I pray for us as a people that we would wait, that we would trust, that we would believe that you are working this together for our good and that we would be looking, that our eyes would be up to you, remembering who you are, remembering your faithfulness in the past, and even today and this week, remembering that you can and you will work in our lives. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a powerful, working God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.